This is the Bates Bobcast, our weekly podcast where we take a look at the week that was in Bates Athletics. My name is Aaron Morrison. This week we continue our Why I Coach series with the head coach of Bates football, Malik Hall. That's coming up on the Bates Bobcast. Malik Hall is the 20th head coach in the history of the Bates College football program. He graduated from the University of Massachusetts in 2003 and has coached throughout the Northeast, most recently at the University of Pennsylvania, before arriving at Bates in 2018. We sat down with Coach Hall for a chat about how he got started coaching and who has influenced him along the way. Well, Coach, you grew up in Detroit, and then you played your college ball at UMass. And at, and at what point in time, you know, throughout your you know time playing football, did you start to think, hey, when I graduate college, I want to coach football? Man, I, you know, because of my experience with football and, and, you know, I finished my career at UMass, but it was by way of a lot of different institutions. So um, just understanding, you know, big time football came with a lot of politics and a lot of timing. Um, and understanding that, you know, coaching a game and it, it just seemed such a big task because it just was not about coaching the players anymore. And so I was able to kind of get a peek of that during my experience as a player is coaches were juggling more than just our personalities and our issues, right? Um, there's a staff of, of men of 15 staffing, not to mention the auxiliary staff behind a, a division one program. It just seemed like, um, and I remember when my coaches first identified me as a guy that, that they would like to take the uh, graduate assistant spot. I thought to myself, I said, guys, I've been in the facility since, okay, 7 a.m. this morning. It is eight o'clock. <laughs> you guys aren't even going home yet. I'm just getting out of this parking lot and y'all probably gonna go and have another staff meeting. And it's eight o'clock. Why would I do that to myself and whatever family I wanna have? And so at the time, uh, shout out to uh, Sean Spencer and um, Frank Fercucci. Um, Sean Spencer is um, the D-line coach at the Giants and Frank Fercucci is the head coach at Beggar College. Both of those guys laughed and was like, well, we'll see you after a year. And fast forward, um, I'm teaching elementary because I just want to coach elementary. I'm going to teach elementary. I want to coach little league football at best high school. It's pure. It was about the player and whatever you could give the player, nothing more. Um, and that's what my goal was. Fast forward, I get a call from Coach Fercucci, uh, Frank Fercucci, and he asked if I wanted to coach the D-line at Central Connecticut. And at the time, I was, I just started my graduate program at Eastern Michigan. And um, I considered going to their football office and asking if I could GA. And um, I didn't know anyone at Eastern Michigan, though I'm from Detroit. It was 40 minutes from my, from my door. I said, why would I go work for football guys that I don't know opposed to football guys I do know? And, fat, and next thing you know, I'm coaching at Central Connecticut. 
I'm a year. I just got through playing Central Connecticut. So some of the guys that I'm coaching, I had played against. So it was a very, very interesting dichotomy. And for me, I wasn't, it was like, I was just looking at myself as their big brother or their older cousin and just trying to get them to what they wanted for their experience. Because even for me at the time, I, I didn't care if we won a championship. I just wanted to get my graduate degree and be able to give players experience somewhat of my own. And um, i never forget it. I was three courses from finishing my graduate degree and Citadel called me, the Citadel in South Carolina called me and asked me to interview. They're like, we gotta fly you down. I'm like, well, I kind of have like a final to take and I got two more classes. And then after that call, I get a call from Fordham. And Fordham like, hey, you're in or you out? We want you, if you don't want it, we gonna move on. And slowly the master's degree became to be a distant reasoning for getting into coaching. Um, I guess I got bit by the coaching bug. And from that point on, I just took off. Every year that I considered re-enrolling to finish my master's degree, someone called me like, hey, you interested in this job? Uh, I guess the master's await again. And so along the way, politics, the reason I didn't want to get into coaching, the long hours, the politics, the uh, administration piece, that all became very, very, uh, not minute, but a small factor in what I enjoyed most, which was the families that you, you were able to encounter, the, uh, the way you can change a young man's perspective on the game, which ultimately will help his perspective when he's done. Um, and every year from that point on at Central Connecticut, I've been able to say that those players I've coached are no longer players, they're, they're friends, which is another weird economy of you being the authority figure and having to make decisions for their interests and get them to understand your decisions um, and know that it's for them to, when they call me and they, some of them still say, coach, what's up? And some of them like, hey, Malik, what's up? Now both is like, wait a minute. The one guy who calls me coach, I gotta remind him, hey bro, I'm not your coach no more. You can call me Malik. And the one guy who's calling me Malik, hey bro, I'm still your coach. Give me a break here. <laughs> so for even me being in that space almost 20 years later, um, the fears and the things that I was apprehensive about with coaching, they're so they're, they're so low volume and noise now because the players, the families that I make connections with, you're a part of their lives forever. That's the space in his memory or the family's memory that you're connected to. And that became empowering. It became a, um, a responsibility that I started to not take lightly. Um, and it became less about Saturday and more about every day. And that, when I figured that part of it out, I started putting things on paper from my mind to paper to give to player. 
So it would go to my mind, to a paper, and to the player, whether he hung it up in his room, whether he bought it up and played <laughs> trash basketball with it. Um, I felt if the only thing that I could give our players while I was coaching was um, a technique, I felt like I'm I felt like I missed it and they missed it. And so um, I look back at it and I think about every every player that I felt like I lost, seven of them. And interesting enough, I just tried to reach out and find one of them. I, the very first one I lost, I would say, to just um, me not being able to reach him, whether it be because you know, his social ineptness to um, being on a predominantly white institution, or whether it be he was in over his head athletically and he had to overachieve to get on the field. Um, I don't want to shout his name out, but I just started, he came to my mind probably four weeks ago after the a Central Connecticut kid, one of the first kids I coached, who I lost, but unintentionally, I didn't, I didn't know that that was my role at the time. He reached out to me and was like, coach, what's going on? I'm like, oh my goodness, this dude Clay, how you been? What you been doing? It's like a it's like a family reunion. And he made me think of the other kid. And I and I've been reaching out just with all of the social media stuff. You figure I'm gonna find him. Yeah. I, I have yet to find him. I found the name, but no pictures, and I don't know if that's him. Um, because those seven, those seven players that I'm thinking about. He was the one that I, I think pressed me to the space where I felt like I failed. Mm. It was some things that I could have said to him or I could have shown him to help protect him from felling out or protect him from getting kicked out. And ever since then, it's been um, it's been important to me almost more, it, not almost, it's definitely been more important than winning for me, but it's almost just as important as me getting them to graduate or the school graduating them because my graduation for them is to get them to the stage. Yeah. If I can get them to the stage, whether you were all conference or all American or play 10 snaps your whole career, like you were able to stay through a whole lot of ups and downs to find yourself walking. And so my why has changed over the years in some different in some different ways, but at the core, I think it's um, it's highlighted the core of who I am, which is a teacher um, and using football as the subject matter. You mentioned um, some coaches who helped you get started in the industry, if you will, I guess. Um, right, right. Um, in terms of coaches along the way, who are some really stand out who have been good mentors for you to, to learn how to do this? Man, I, I, I will say in, in, I've always been vocal with this one is, is Frank Fricucci from a defensive standpoint. He's such a historian of the game and meticulous about detail. And so my first two years in my uh, grad assistantship or uh, apprenticeship, if you will, that's really what that stuff is, right? I remember that was harder than playing. And playing, it took on a different hard for me. You expect it to be this difficult, if not harder, especially if you had NFL aspirations. And so whatever was thrown in front of you as a player, you accepted it, the level of difficulties because if you didn't, you, you weren't going to get to where you wanted to be. 
I didn't know what I was signing up for at the time. I had no idea. Like, I'm like, they gonna pay for my graduate degree? No brainer. Like, hey, whatever else they do, I, I did four years, five years of football. How hard could this be? <laughs> Man, I learned more about myself in terms of discipline. I learned so much in terms of detail and the art and science, if you will, of coaching. Coach Fricucci, Frank Fricucci gave me all of that. Coach Ed Argas, who's on our staff today, um, when, the, when it was just so difficult because of the demand, the hours, um, the expectation of doing great work, regardless of you being on your 13th hour in the office. That's not, that's not acceptable to say oh, I was tired, so I misspelled everything on a document. Or um, in understanding it, whatever I gave the players, that was a reflection of what was expected for them in terms of output. And so Coach Argas, I remember being like, man, I don't know that I can do this for real. This is a lot. Coach Argas told me in, in the words that I didn't know I even needed. He said, yeah, you'll be fine. Like you're trying to learn the science part. The art part you have because you've been painting football since Little League. So you understand the art, you understand the culture. What you didn't, you didn't even know how much work your, your coaches were putting in because all you could think about as a player is the sweat equity you were pouring out. Coaches are putting that same work in, but it's so much more scientific and less athletic, less skill set, less about what intellect you have. It's all about what you can find. And when he broke that down to me, I started to realize like, if I'm really going to do this, I can't be the coach that has the art down because someone's going to ask you how you painted that. And if you're like, hey, dude, I just let the art flow. Like, I'll, I will be jobless because I can't show my work. And so it became, and I sucked in middle school math, it became like um, nostalgic because I now had to rectify some things I wouldn't rectify in middle school in my learning habits and my study habits. And Coach Frank Fricucci instilled that in me. And then Ed Argas just made me understand that what I'm learning, because I didn't know what I was learning. And then I get to Coach Dave Cohen, who is now Coach Dave Cohen and Coach Mike Elko. Coach Mike Elko is now at the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M. And Coach Dave Cohen is the D defensive coordinator, D-line coach, co-defensive coordinator at Wake Forest. Coach Elko approached the game through a science way that I've never seen. I don't know if Coach Elko is, is ever kind of goes to Vegas or Atlantic City, but if he did, I'm going to go on the limb and say he probably hits pretty big. Because he, he much like Frank, Frank was showing me the science but Frank never left out the emotion of it all. And so when I got over to Hofstra with Mike Elko, he would make sure he didn't let emotions dictate a call. And it was almost, hey, there's 17% there's on third down. We've already taken 2% away. So let's call them 10% today. Like, 
I mean, numbers, very Raymond-ish in terms of process. And I don't say that with any ill will. I mean, that was a great movie. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that was a classic. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and then Dave Cohen, who showed me, think outside the box of techniques that you can teach. And so it was, it was very cool during the pandemic. He was able to speak to our staff and a bunch of other staffs. And pandemic hit in spring of March, last spring. So a lot of people didn't know if they were gonna play, if they weren't gonna play, but all of his players were at home. And so he had players record themselves punching bumper tires and pushing cars. It was another reminder, like the game is, the game's lines, the 53 and a half, 100 yard field, that's for game day. But outside the lines, you can prep and prepare yourself 10 different ways to be ready for in the line. He had them pushing cars, punching front and back bumpers of the cars. Those cars are built for impact. The bumpers are built for impact. No player was going to dig the bumper. So what he did, he put incentive out. Put a dent out there. Let me see you put a dent in a bumper. I got something for you. Whether it was gear, whether it was whatever award he gave him the week. So he took something that no one's ever done. No one doesn't punch cars as a D lineman, but no one has ever been in a pandemic. And so working for him, he showed me like, take your drill and find a different way to run it. When you transition from assistant coach to now head coach, here at Bates, this is your first head coaching job. Uh, who did you go to? How? What were some immediate adjustments you had to make kind of to, to learn a new role? Because a head coach is a whole other level from, you know, coaching the defensive line, right? Yeah, it is. And that's where we came in from coordinating. It was completely different. And so that's when I relied on, on uh, the athletic director, head coach at Wagner College or ex-head coach. He's not an athletic director, Water. Walt Hamline and head coach uh, Ray Priori at UPN. Um, both of their styles are completely different. Um, and while working for them, I, I try to make notes on every head coach that I worked for after every year to just reflect on some things that I've taken away, some things I need to work on for their style. And um, coach Hamline, who was awesome, he, his whole thing was like to give his, his coaches the autonomy to do what he hired them to do um, and to not micromanage it. Um, so much so that he, he, he would let you go through a whole year and you may not know he was, he was watching everything that you've done. And then the end of the year, he has some things that happen in camp, some things that happen mid season, some things that happen in the winter. And you're like, oh my, this dude is watching. He may not say it, but he's watching. So he showed me to allow, he showed me how to allow guys to work and work through some challenges um, and always watch, but you don't have to let everybody know you're watching, you know, because that presents two problems. That presents a problem of, oh, he knows I'm watching, so he's doing it because I'm watching, right? Or he knows I'm watching and he's, he's folding, right? He gave coaches the ability to find their identity as a coach and to find their sweet spot in terms of conveying what he wanted to the coordinator to get in the production out of your guy. Um, coach Priori, which was 
a great, I mean, what I thought I learned from him, I've never dealt with the high academic index kids such as in such a way. Mm. Fordham, maybe, sure. But Fordham was a scholarship situation too. Right. And so when you think about it, like the kids at UPenn, it's not scholarship. They're making an investment. Their family's making an investment. They know this is a four, maybe five year investment. I got to get moving. And so I think as scholarship spaces, you take that for granted at times. Um, at Penn, watching Coach Fiore balance the academics and the athletics for the player so the player never had to worry about it. The player never had to get jammed up or feel like that the message of Saturday was different for his message for Monday because he had a big midterm. We both got tests. But you can't get that test done in the classroom if I got you in here on all kind of hours. Mm-hmm. And being that is a Division One model, nonetheless, you can get caught up in the Division One media as well. And so, um, just seeing how he was able to organize the academics, the athletics, and also maintain a sense of poise for for our coaching staff, for the players and supplementing some things that they just didn't have things, time to think about, like peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter and jelly is a American classic. You would never know that football players will go nuts for peanut butter and jelly until you see the new fresh peanut butter schmuckers come in and it's strawberry not grape, or it's apple not strawberry. It, it was so trivial and you could almost say, you know, that's not a big deal. And it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't impact the budget. It didn't change how they looked. Um, but that was one less thing that they didn't have to think about before practice. Oh, I got to grab something to eat. Oh, I got, I just got through lifting. I got to go to class. No worries. Grab a Schmuckers, right? Grab a P and J. Um, that, created impact in a way that I remember thinking guys can hang their hat on when they're in a rush to go to a class or a study group from football, grab a few P&Js, grab a, a salty and nutty bar, grab a granola, whatever it is, grab a milk. Watching him supplement things for them so they didn't have to think about, and they could think about the things that they came to pin to think about, football, the Wharton program, the graduate programs, the internships, and and taking care of the team in that way. Mm. And so those two, I mean, they were they were monumental in getting me to understand um, what I wanted for this team. Right. Though though we're not scholarship, though we're not Division One, and we're not Ivy, but that's not to say that I can't create an expectation of the result that came from those places, right? And so um, dealing with our alum to, you know, we we created a Schmuckers commercial <laughs> to try to get Schmuckers to uh, sign us up and sponsor us, right? <laughs> um, because our guys loved it. Like, hey, coach, we need a Schmuckers after the workout. And it's, I wouldn't have known to do that if I didn't see Coach Priori do it. Um, I wouldn't have known to give my guys the leeway to come up with new mantras for their individual groupings, 
right? Um, 11.30, for example. I didn't come up with 11.30. And if you didn't know 11.30, okay. And so at the time when Coach Patman was here, he would ask the guys, what time is it? They would say 11.30. In my mind, 11.30 is about pregame before kickoff of a 12 o'clock kickoff. Now that's me making sense. But it was 11 man to the ball, three and out. Like I didn't come up with that. I have to give our coaches a space to be creative um, and to be inspirational as they find their sweet spot of the science and the art. As we mentioned before, you're from Detroit. Now you're coaching football in, in, in Maine. Obviously, you've been in the Northeast for quite some time at different schools, as we mentioned. But how much of that, your background in, De- in Detroit growing up, do you try to bring to, to Bates College, kind of in terms of building a team culture and whatnot? It's not so much just my background from Detroit more than it is my background of all of the spaces I've been. Mm. And so what I brought from Detroit to Maine and which I think already resides in our community is that blue collar mentality. Yeah. Like if you've gone, if you've ever been to Lewis and Auburn or if you haven't been to Detroit, like it's a blue collar community. Like Lewiston, Auburn was a mill factory town, right? And the early, however early of our country and industrialization, like Detroit was the heartbeat to get Americans traveling. Yeah. To get Americans from A to B. We were no, we we took the horse and made it horsepower, right? Right, right. Like it takes, and when you look at that, like nothing about that said, like, like when you think of that kind of work, you think about oil, you think about dirt, you think about blood, you think, like that's the same thing in the textile mills, mm. right? It's there's legitimate hard work, and when that whistle blows, that's when you know your day over. It's not I'm gonna go outside. You know we don't have our next we don't have our next appointment into thirty minutes. Like no, that line gonna get backed up, bro. Right. <laughs> and so um, that hard hat, that grit, and that that the will to still get to what you want. You know, Detroit isn't a major immigrant population. Lewiston, whether it be our Somalian immigrants or before that, whether it be our French Canadian immigrants, like what Detroit had embodied for the country, much like Lewiston, Auburn, like it gave a space for people to come to and who were not willing, who were not afraid of sweat, blood and hard work to carve something out for themselves. Um, and that's what I want for us here as, as a base football program, is we wanna yield people who know there's some hard work in front of us, but if you want that opportunity and to carve out a future for you past the four years at Bates, we got an opportunity that we can use you and that we can help you get to where you wanna go. But it's go, you gotta bring your hard hat. And you probably go break a few nails, get a little blood on your cheek, you know. Um, but all in all, there will be no question on what was done and how it was done, much like our textile plants, much like the auto plant. Um, everyone, know, everyone knew until the textiles ran out, it was coming out of Maine, much like the boot, uh, the Fontaines, like the work boot was coming out of Maine, right? The, <laughs> 
You mean to tell me Maine supplied work boots for 60% of our country from the 70s to the 80s and one guy and then Warren Buffett knew it and then he came in and said, like, hey, bro, we gonna blow this up. I think one, I think Americans generally respect hard work and they can see hard work. And so I believe in our recruiting, that's what we're pitching, hard work. We're pitching grit. We're not, we're not pitching we got a $25 million facility because we don't. Right. We have we have the river that we can run up and down and get our legs right over. Right. Um, but we got to be able to embrace who we are and the love, the identity that we come from. Great. Malik Hall, thank you so much for joining us on the Bobcast. Really appreciate it. No problem. And again, hey, it's always a great day to be a Bobcat. Next time on the Bates Bobcast, we'll continue our Why I Coach series with head field hockey coach Danny Ryder Kogut and head volleyball coach, Melissa Duran. That's next time on the Bates Bobcast. Bates! Bates!